welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Pod Less America with your co-hosts, Fearless, uh, myself, Peter Severson, Director of Lutheran Advocacy here in the, the great state of Colorado. It's the, it's the Purple Mountain Majesty, Peter. Oh, uh, yes. yes. I'm Zach Ferris. I'm the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder. And occasionally you'll find me... Uh, on the campus of America's only and finest institute of higher education in the Buddhist tradition, uh, Naropa University. Mm. You're a man about town, and that town... I am all about this town. That town is Boulder, Colorado, which is... It's quite a town. And you know, when I think of Boulder, Zach, I think of... I think of a lot of things. I think of uh, bike lanes, Mm. and I think of, you know, natural food stores... And I think of uh, plastic bag bans. Aversions to vaccines. (laughs) Yeah, that as well. There's a, you know, there's a lot of things going on in Boulder that are, but I feel like there's a, there's a, there's this unique sort of attention that's paid in that, you know, saintly people's republic to um, ecological concerns. And so I feel like there's, you know, that's my that's my way of doing a sort of you know backhanded intro to our guest today because I feel like the the ecological and the intersection uh, with theology is exactly why we've invited our wonderful guest on today. It's Tara Rowe. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you here. Uh, I'll I'll let you introduce yourself in a moment a little more extensively, but uh, we. Um, on the pod, you know, taking a bit of a hiatus. Uh, as you know, Zach and I were both on uh, separate vacations for the last five months, I think. I don't know. I, I don't know what Zach did with his vacation time. It's but. a it's an ecological reality that sometimes you got to let the fields lay fallow. Yes. So right. that, that the is, new growth can come in just so abundantly. That's so biblical in its way. Sort of a... I, I, boy, you, you know more about uh, first century Palestinian agriculture than I do. But do I, yes, ever? I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. But all that to say, the, the, last, uh, the last episode we recorded before, uh, before the break, before the hiatus, was uh, with Professor Dr. Jim White up there at uh, CU Boulder, the Institute for Alpine and Arctic Research. And uh, we, we started a conversation about the intersection of uh, theology and ecology, and and got into a little bit. We were focusing at that time, I think, on climate change, talking about the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, Of course, you know, nothing has changed in our world since then in the last five months, so we're pretty much still in the same, you know, nothing notable has happened as far as I'm aware. The only notable thing is that Syria bought in in the meantime, but other than that. Yeah, and Nicaragua maybe too, whoever were the holdouts, yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, so that was that was our previous uh, that was our previous discussion, and we wanted to kind of keep going, take a deeper dive, you know, submerse ourselves uh, in the sort of uh, uh, nautilus of knowledge, if you will. Is that the submersible from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? I'm not sure. That's. I think you're looking for a reference to Stranger Things, where he said, "I'm on a, oh, a knowledge oh. journey, and books are my paddles. I need my paddles." As he stole the books in the library. We're journeying into the the upside down well in a way maybe what we need is to turn the world of ecology economy and the protestant tradition upside down with a better worldliness that for the eagle eagle-eyed listeners and i know you're not watching but you're listening that is part of the title of our guests 
uh, recent book published this very year, uh, Toward a Better Worldliness. And uh, this is a book that we'll, we'll hopefully talk about uh, here on the episode today, and we'll talk about even more. But uh, Tara, I've, I've spoken enough. I want to give you a chance to just introduce yourself and, and talk about the, the kind of work and the scholarship that you, uh, that you engage in. Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm a professor of religion and ecology at the University of North Texas. I just started here, just moved down, was living in the Hudson River Valley, just this summer moved down and um, started here at UNT. So um, here I teach courses, I'm teaching a class on religion and science and a class on ecofeminism. Um, but my my kind of my background and you know the thing that really I focus on in my scholarship is the relationship between our religious and philosophical worldviews and how those shape our um, environmental values and practices. And wrapped in all of that, of course, are our economic values and practices as well. You know what kind of religious implications are. Um, many times lying underneath in unconscious ways, guiding our economic practices, our ecological values, stuff mm. like that. Yeah. And I have a strong background in, in Lutheran theology, Lutheran thought. Um, I went to a couple of, um, of Lutheran seminaries, um, did a, a MA in Dachinal ministry at Wartburg Seminary and STM at the um, seminary in Philadelphia before I did my PhD in Drew. So, so yeah, I'm always kind of coming at these questions from, um, from the Lutheran perspective. And usually kind of the way I approach it is that I'm wanting to maybe raise some, some questions or problematize some things, even in mm. the Protestant tradition, the Lutheran tradition, in the good um, kind of in the good path laid out by people like Joseph Sittler. You know, he had just uh-huh. this great kind of method of an internal tr- critique and then uh, internal transformation of, you know, how do we rethink the Protestant tradition so that we're not pitting nature against grace, for example? Mm, wow. Pitting nature against grace is a very evocative phrase, I think. I mean, we, we just eagle again, eagle eared is the phrase I'm going to use. Listeners will know we uh, we just commemorated 500 years of our this this Protestant Reformation that, you know, among other things, gave us this this tradition of, of Lutheranism that we've been talking about. And uh, so a lot of what is known popularly, at least by uh, people about Lutheranism is this idea of grace. Hopefully that's, that's sort of in the, the popular knowledge, you know, and you talk about the links between grace uh, and its ecological and economic implications in this book. And I'm, I'm just curious to like, understand more what what you mean by that like how does i think of grace as such a deeply and it may be exclusively theological term but i i don't quite i'm I'm interested to know where where does that take us yeah so maybe i'll just i'll start with joseph sittler because this is a a thing that sittler um started talking about in the 1950s where he would go to lectures and talk to people about ecology and they would have to go home and look up what this new term ecology meant um but of course a lutheran Mm -hmm. pastor and um deeply concerned about about these issues and he started with this question of um, the ways that the Protestant tradition, and at that time, neo-Orthodoxy, um, Bardian theology was really strong. And um, and so he, he discerned, particularly in his time, but then kind of throughout Protestant thought, 
um, recognize this tendency that we have to emphasize redemption and salvation um, justification so strongly and that we contrasted that against nature. So Mm -hmm. nature is deterministic. It has kind of this um, circular economy and grace is God's interruption of that of Mm. that um, circular economy of giving and receiving, giving and receiving. And God's grace um, is unilateral. It just comes to us from outside. It's a free gift. So and in this, I'm kind of shifting from Joseph Sittler to kind of my my analysis and the ways that I've been talking about and problematizing the common language of grace as a free gift. Mm. Um, And so kind of what I'm trying to do is enter into this discussion, um, this really rich discussion of eco-reformation. You know, Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we talk about the Protestant heritage and its relation to climate crisis today, environmental crisis today? And there's a lot of people, and I think for, for good reason, who are emphasizing grace as the, the kind of Protestant answer to prophetic answer to an overarching drive of capitalism to reduce mm-hmm. everything to uh, economic value or economic worth. And so grace mm-hmm. is, you know, the opposite of that, then it's, it's something that um, that's opposed to that. So the ways that I want to kind of problematize that is that um, there is also, as we know, within the Protestant tradition, a tendency at kind of an alignment with of Protestant values with capitalistic values and mm-hmm. again, this this resurgence of nature against grace that um, that we have to kind of um, choose whether we're going to emphasize creation or emphasize redemption. And usually, we as Protestants, we emphasize emphasize re- redemption. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about um, things like uh, grace as a free gift, I, this is you know prevalent language um, in the Protestant tradition, and um, the problem, one of the problems with that is that it's gift theorists have now identified that um, that the free gift is something that has not always been, um, prioritized, um, before modernity and before the reformation gift exchange was kind of the ideal Mm -hmm. And with the reformation, a new kind of concept of grace emerged, uh, emphasis on free gift. And there are now people aligning this understanding of free gift with the emergence um, of capitalism, that this um, in some ways set foundational values of capitalism. So basically Mm -hmm. the point is that if we are going to emphasize the value of grace and use that as a way of protesting capitalistic values that are leading to things like climate change and stuff like that, I think we also really need to emphasize and be honest with the ways about the ways that the Protestant tradition has also contributed to, um, and even our doctrines of grace have contributed to the very things that we're wanting to protest. Mm-hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. This this link between Protestant vision for uh, you could argue the uh, you know the sort of Max Weber ideal of you know the Protestant work ethic and the idea that we're going to you know use the free gifts of the earth perhaps you know for whatever purposes we deem 
worthy without like interrogating that that doesn't like inform what is a worthy purpose maybe and we we struggle to figure out how do we engage in a world that seems to offer us so much abundance and like why wouldn't we use it for whatever ends we deem necessary i mean i'm thinking of this and you know zach will know in in context with our the debates that we have a lot of towns and cities in colorado are are fighting back against oil and gas well pad expansion and development especially in like the northern suburbs of denver uh broomfield just passed a measure, in fact, uh, at the at the ballot box last week, um, making it more restrictive. They do bring a lot to the local economy, and yet at the same time, your house may blow up from time to time. That's yes, that's the drawback was, on that. That's there was an actual house explosion that that did occur. Yes, and so yeah, so there's all this energy that's um, uh, you know that's not a pun. There's uh, this uh, this verve, let's say, in the debate about. Uh, what is what is our appropriate interaction with the you know oil and mineral wealth that we have? The industry comes in and says, of course we need to use this and make use of it and exploit it and and harness it and let's put up billboards that say if you love a hot shower you love fracking, which is what we have all over here. And then there are people in the community that say mm, we need a more nuanced approach. And so this is just I mean maybe one maybe overly specific example, but I'm thinking of. Like people are grasping for tools to articulate um, something other than let's just exploit all the resources we have. I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there there are ways that in the in the Protestant, especially evangelical tradition, that um, you know, I think this is what most people go to when they think of Christianity, Protestantism in relation to climate change. They think of climate denialism, mm-hmm. and. Um, and, you know, I think there's been a lot of good research done on that and, you know, indicating that the more conservative you are Christian, uh, you know, the more kind of far you are on the Christian evangelical line, the more likely you are to deny things like climate change and or at least the anthropogenic causes of climate change. Um, so that, yeah, there's really good research kind of aligning that. And part of what I'm trying to emphasize is that there are also ways that in the mainline tradition, for even even for those people that um, are um, have really um, great social justice, eco- economic justice, and ecological justice concerns, there are ways that even for us in the mainline, the ways that we are talking about and framing grace um, that are environmentally problematic as well. So it's not just kind of those other people who are kind of off the deep end um, that that need to be analyzed and looked at, but I think we need to do some real ref- reflection about in the Protestant tradition, in the Lutheran tradition, about the ways that we are, we may be contributing to these issues even if we um, are not wanting to. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter, uh, Fracking in the shower always sounds like a good idea, but in practice, it never, never lives not, up to the hype. Not um, a great. I mean, you, there's a lot of fire involved. That's true. That's true. I um, so I'm a bit of a a, a pessimist mm. on on most of life. I'm either romantic, hopelessly romantic, or incredibly. I live at the ends of spectrums. Um, <laughs> at the same time, and I like uh, this example of fracking. Because it starts to paint 
I think the picture in different terms, uh, or the conversation starts to have to happen in different terms than a lot of our experience uh, engaging the environmental movement has been. Uh, I was very fuss. I was very. I used to be very fussy, and now I'm happy all the time. Uh, I get <laughs> like I get, a like a one year old. Yeah, Peter seeing me at Senate events. I'm happy all the time. I got very fussy my last year at seminary because it was Earth Year, not because it was Earth Year, right? We had a theme year that year, and it was Earth Year, and there were all these little signs that, uh, put all over the seminary campus, right? Like reminding you to turn the light off, encouraging you not to take the elevator, uh, telling you all these things that you needed to do, like individually. And so my concern, like from a Lutheran perspective, especially as a Lutheran who grew up in the South, I'm very wary of uh, and sensitive to, to turning like individual belief into a work in which we save ourselves. And, and I'm, I'm convinced, right, that the size of the problem that we face uh, can't, not only is it just not practically a, a problem that will be solved through individual choice, but that it doesn't, how do we engage theologically from a Lutheran tradition, the idea that we've got this massive problem that's going to kill us all, holding in one hand the idea that, that we can't save ourselves from this, in kind of in the other hand, acknowledging uh, the cruciformity of the grace, right? The other almost contemporary to Sittler, costly grace sorts of things, right? Things are going to have to die for us to live. So maybe a two-partish question, right? On one hand, I think you're, we're, we're, we're talking around that kind of idea that, that grace has been a conversation about a sort of individual salvation. And on the other, uh, the scarier question uh, that, that we're not, that I don't hear very much of, uh, especially even in Boulder, uh, what is gonna to have to die uh, in order for us to live. Yeah, yeah, so this is this was something that Sittler was so great on. Um, it was, yeah, he really emphasized the, the problematic ways that we, we talk about grace just in terms of God and me, right? That, that grace is something about my relationship with God. And, and he wanted to talk not only about um, the eco ecological grace, but the ecological self. So for him, this is what I think he was really brilliant at is that he saw that um, the kind of grace that we talk about implies a certain anthropology. It implies a certain understanding of the self. And so if your if your understanding of what it means to be human changes, and we want to change that to something that's more ecological, something that's more interdependent, connected with um, with the other than human world, um, as well as the divine, that this is going to change how we think about grace. There are going to be implications for that. And we can no longer just understand grace as something that is about my relationship with God and that's it. And so he wanted to talk about a more ecological um, understanding of grace as well. And this is something that I've tried to um, tried to work out um, and, and talk about and extend also in terms of um, Luther's um, kind of de-emphasized or scandalous understanding of the communicatio ideomatum or the communication of properties between um, um, the human and uh, divine in Christ. So, um, but as to... For your other question, what what will have to die in order for us to live? I think this is such a this is um, these are the kind of questions that I think we as Christians don't like to think about because the question implies that there's no pure place to stand from, right? We're not going to get out of this without something dying. There's no pure place to where we can just 
answer everything and everybody gets saved, everybody gets to live. Um, and so, yeah, these are the, but this is also something that the Lutheran tradition is really good at is, um, talking about the messiness of reality and that, and something that I think Luther was great on that we're not chasing after some pure place to stand from. There is no going to be no pure place to stand from. We're always simul. We're always simultaneously saint and sinner. We're always simultaneously, you know, many things. And yeah, so what is what is going to have to die in order for us to live? I think that this is, I think that there are going to be ways that we, ways of being in the world, particularly, that are going to need to die in order for us to live. There are ways of relating to the other than human world that are going to need to die. And there are ways of, um, of viewing our relationship with God that are going to need to die. So I think what has been really helpful for me is to try to shift away from a kind of separative, individualistic understanding of what it means to be human and talk about, um, and I'm get, this is from, you know, Sittler as well, talk about the human self as um, the connection point of many different gifts. So um, we're not this what it means to be human isn't just something that's solid, stable, that I, I am who I am and always will be. Um, but a new self is always emerging. Um, we, with some more relational inter inter, um, relational dynamic understanding of what it means to be human. And, um, we have, we, I only exist because of the gifts of many others, um, divine as well as ecological, as well as social. So I think that for me, this, this understanding that's really still predominant in the Lutheran tradition of an individualistic separative self that's primarily about me and, and God. Um, and then that relationship between me and God is primary and then secondarily leads to ethical ethics, issues of ethics, issues of social, and then maybe even thirdly ends, ends up in um, ecological ethics. I think that's something that really needs to, we need to rethink and, and shift away from this hierarchy of first God, then social, then ecological, but see the ways that Luther is talking about how um, when we do good deeds, when we do ethical acts towards our neighbors, those are gifts to God, to God. When we do um, good deeds towards um, other than human creatures, um, those are, those are gifts to God. Um, And so there's no sense of like first God, and then kind of our ethical acts as separate, but they're all intertwined. Hmm. You know, when you're, you're talking about the individual sort of distinction of like understanding ourselves as like these autonomous units in Protestantism, that like all that matters is myself and my personal relationship with my Lord and Savior, um, which is a, a refrain I think we hear a lot, that doesn't, you know, have that attentiveness to the larger world that's kind of what zach was pointing at like individual acts but paying no attention to sort of our collective um impact it what it made me think of for whatever reason was was charles taylor uh and for the for the eagle-eared listeners i'm not referring to the former president of liberia or the shoe guy neither of those guys (laughs) i'm referring of course to the canadian academic uh, as you know as we all know 
Um, no, he, he, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, Tara, but uh, he, he wrote this, this book about 10 years ago, a secular age, um, tracing, uh, arguing a, a particular model of how, um, uh, the secularizing process came to be in the world. How did that come to be a thing that we understood in the world, um, that there was, it was possible to look at the world, not through a theological lens. Uh, but part of that argument, there's a sort of just a chunk of it. That is what you made me think of is, is when he describes the, uh, you know, the disenchantment of the world as one of the steps in this process. The idea that we are, we are came to understand ourselves as, being apart from the world, you know, we as humans, and that the world was not infused with this sort of sense of the divine in the way that previous iterations of humanity uh, understood it to be. And and so part of that, I think, has an ecological angle. Uh, and I'm, that's kind of my question to you is, is there is there something in our um, disenchantment of the world uh, that is, is it possible to re-enchant the world? Is, is that what we're after? Are we trying to, to re-enchant the world so that we might, so that we might on that basis uh, understand it as sort of inherently valuable and that we are uh, a part of it in a way that we maybe haven't thought of ourselves as a part of it? Or will it take something else? I mean, I, Taylor argues we can't go back to the re-enchanted world necessarily, but I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. So, and I'd have to look, actually have, have his text, um, right over in the corner. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I figured so, it was in there somewhere, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I, I find that, um, um, just this, the, the approach of post-secularism really helpful in terms of just understanding the ways that things that we understand as secular things like economics, things like politics that we understand today as secular are really infused with or they're they're functioning as theologies today mm. and they and they have you know exactly. we, sorry zach agrees with you i can tell i do not believe in secularism it's bullshit <laughs> <laughs> anyway well, well we'll come back to that in a hot sec we'll put a pin in that but yes please yeah so um yeah, I think that this is this is approach is really helpful, um, a, a way to demonstrate that even for for those those of us that no longer believe that don't believe that there are ways that religions have functioned and are and still are functioning and creating um, some of our basic assumptions ruling our economics our politics today, and um, and this this example of enchantment of the world is is a great example because um, I would have to go back and look at the text, but I'm guessing that he's he's directly referring to Weber because that's 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 what Weber, um, that's one of the Weber's complaints is that we've lost the sense of enchantment in the world. And this is directly related with with Protestantism as well. Um, some of the some of the scholarship that I'm really interested in is looking back even before kind of the Protestant Reformation, this um, this medieval movement um, called nominalism um, with Dun Scotus and um, William of Ockham. And um, in, in nominalism, there's um, this, this sense that um, God no longer participates in, in the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we lose a sense of a participatory kind of ontology. 
And, um, and this is something that directly influenced Luther, directly influenced our understandings of grace. Hmm. So, you know, so this is another, one of the ways that I think that we really need to look at Protestant understandings, Protestant theology, um, and the ways that we have um, contributed to a sense of a loss of the sacred in nature. And I think that this would be, yeah, this is, this is something that I'm after. You know, um, another great text is Carolyn Merchant on the death of nature. And so she outlines um, throughout kind of the Western philosophy how, um, and her answer is kind of in the scientific revolution that we arrived at this understanding of matter and of nature as dead, as passive, mm-hmm. as not, and as separate from any kind of sacred, sacred imminence, mm. right? And, um, and so this is something that I think finding a way to talk about the other than human world as having some kind of sense of agency, as having some kind of sense of vitality, of vitalism, of liveliness, apart from a human mind or um, as being infused with spirit and having spiritual value is something that I think is really important. And, um, and there's, you know, good work in, um, in theology and religious studies going on in, in this area. But I think the thing, one of the areas that really excites me is um, the area of new materialism. And this is mostly a, a secular, you know, non-religious, non-theist um, group of people, a group of scholars who are, again, kind of uh, following Carolyn Merchant's understanding, um, looking at the ways that in modern society, especially since the scientific revolution, that we have come to understand matter as dead, inert, lacking all kind of sacred sacredness. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, there's some really cool work going on there um, in terms of looking at matter as having a gentle pot- potential. People like Jane Bennett are talking about climate change um, as a way of humans experiencing our limit. Um, and and we, we experience a sense of finitude and limit. And normally we would understand something like climate change is just kind of a consequence, but she's interpreting that as an agency, mm-hmm. as a way of matter talking back to us. Um, and she talks about that in terms of like waste or trash too. You know, we see these things, we tend to like throw these things away and then think that because they're passive, they're dead, you know, they can kind of go away. But as we know from environmental studies and ecological studies, they have a way of coming back to us in acid rain, when we burn our trash, you know. And so there's people looking at this, um, at matter and at what we have seen as inert and as dead and dead. Um, in really new and exciting ways. And um, now just with, you know, some new conversations, now, you know, religious scholars are starting to engage these new materialisms as well. So is that, mm. is that Natalie's sister? <laughs> um, That's for all of our sure. young listeners out there who really enjoy references to folks from the the mid 90s early 90s um we we have a lot of we have a lot of those fans out we there we do we do we do gosh i like it i like it i um i'm excited about mystery and reclaiming mystery i uh was really influenced by uh wendell berry's uh life is a mystery a miracle i wonder if 
I find his critique of science really compelling. And and as a church, right, we've done so much work on on saying out loud and doing work that we need to do to say these things aren't inseparable. And yet the church, I think, has a critique to make, especially of like at least of a cultural scientific understanding. And his critique in, in Life is a Miracle, uh, Wendell's critique is that, that, that there are parts of science that claims all knowledge, uh, yeah. that there's nothing we don't know. There's only things we don't know yet. And that he calls us, uh, Wendell is calling us that life is much more uh, about mystery uh, and that we must acknowledge the things we don't know. And, and, uh, and in the words of, uh, I've got an incredible Vaclav Havel quote for just this occasion. I knew oh. listeners were hoping we could get a quote from at least one. We of always the pro- try to get in Vaclav each, each week. At least one president of the Czech Republic. But the medieval peasant and a small boy are still rooted in a world which knows the dividing line between all that is intimately familiar and appropriately a subject of our own concern and that which lies beyond its horizon, that before which we should bow down humbly because of the mystery about it. Um, gosh, I think there's still room for, for, for the church to make that kind of critique. I don't know. It feels helpful to me. Yeah. You know, and what that, that reminds me of is, um, um, another scholar of religion, Francesca Cho, um, is actually, um, a Buddhist Margaret's sister. Yeah. (laughs) We've got a lot of interrelation. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But one of the things, one of the, she's, she's talking, she's trying to articulate a sense of religion um, as, as a kind of epistemology and as, um, as an, as a new kind of empiricism. And um, so she, she talks about the, the critiques of, um, you know, the typical critiques of religious people who have concerns about evolution, right? A lot of times we, we write those off and, and, and for good reason that, you know, they're just, they're kind of they're pitting science against religion and in an un- unhelpful ways, um, and yeah, that's I, I want to um, be able to still maintain that. But she's also she also mentions that one of the things that we might want to learn from them or or see in what they're saying is that there's also a concern when we talk about things like evolution or and this also applies to economics um, that we don't want to reduce the value of the human life of the environmental life of the ecological life to just one thing. And I, one thing, and I think that there's a, there can be a tendency in science to say this, this is, this is the case, um, or in economics, this is the case. And this is what, um, what reality is. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of, it's another kind of reduction. And, um, and so she wants to emphasize that when we as religious people resist these kinds of reductions, that, um, we're emphasizing that religion can, is not just about ways of knowing, but that the part of the value of religion is that it can create, it can create a, a way of life. And so, um, and that rather than saying that, you know, emphasizing the religion is about agreeing to this kind of doctrine or this kind of doctrine, and that that's that's in conflict with science, that we can see that part of the value of religion today is that I like the kind of life that it produces. I like the kind of life that um, that I'm able to live based on this um, these rituals and the way that they form me. This worship worshiping community and the way that it form forms me. I like the kind of life that 
that is shaped um, in this religious community. Um, so to me, that's a that's kind of a new emphasis, um, a new angle on a value of religion, where we're kind of shifting away from religion, understanding religion as, you know, I I intellectually assent to this the, mm-hmm. these certain doctrines, right? Um, I, I just I don't find that compelling anymore. I think a lot of people don't find that compelling anymore. But the ways that religious rituals, religious communities shape my life, um, that I I find that more compelling. I uh, oh gosh, so I uh, am a campus pastor on a public college campus in a in a very weird and not that weird place, and so secularism is a thing that gets me hot and bothered. Right, uh, because at least in Boulder, I knew I knew we were coming back. Oh, there. it's coming. I brought up Charles Taylor, be. and it always just sends oh, spin. Gosh, so uh, it masquerades as pure objectivity. Uh, mm-hmm. It denies religious conviction um, because it's denying some sort of like its own imagined like supernatural thing that religion is grounded in. Right, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the whole point of religion, right? Is, is the development of common language to talk about things we can't talk about uh, that in that in Talikian terms, right, are, are uh, things of ultimate value to us. And secularism is not a place that you get to hide and say we don't have ultimate values. Uh, no, you've, you've, it's a whole system built. It's a religion, right? And and it, it to quote uh, another really current TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man, uh, uh, we have the technology. We can solve this problem, right? It's not a scientific problem. Uh, unless we're trying to like save everything that can't be saved, right? But it's a theological problem about having a conversation about things that really matter in society. We're we're in a really good place for that, where we have lots of open. Do- Wait a second, no, we're god awful, uh, and we we like uh, if the death of religion will kill us, it'll kill us because we we lack that common language and can't communicate to each other about these things. Uh, that's my soapbox, and I'll, I'll step down now. <laughs> No, I, I I think that's that's really valuable, and you know there it's there's sometimes a concern that that's that that kind of angle is just religious people trying to reassert our authority or to go back to something. I don't think that's what's going on, um, because there are people um, people that are not theists, people that are not religious, um, arguing that um, that we we do, we need to be more honest about the ways that religions are functioning and are shaping our politics today. Um, so I'm thinking of people like William Connolly. He's a great um, political analyst okay. at Johns Hopkins. Um, he's not a theist, but um, he makes a great argument for why we need to study religions, why we need to. Um, and he has a has a great book called Why I'm Not a Secularist. Right. Mm-hmm. So in the um, um, spinning off of Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. So, you know, now why I'm not a secularist. And he's he's, of course, not arguing that we go back to some kind of theocracy, but he's he's arguing that we need to um, we need to acknowledge the ways that um, for all of us, we can't divide our lives. We don't divide our lives into these public and private spheres. It's just not possible. Um, and. And so, um, so his aim is to, rather than having people set their religious views aside when they come into the public sphere, um, bring their religious views, um, and but then look for ways to work together around them. 
Right. So um, things like, you know, um, being being honest about our um, the ways that our religious views are informing our economics, our um, political practices, our political leanings, bringing those to the public sphere and um, and then trying to find um, productive alignments across faiths. So this is more of a, you know, a, a shift towards pluralism rather than the secular space as an empty space. So, you know, a space void of religion. A disinfected space. Yeah, a space that um, where uh, where many religions can can talk with one another and can find alignment around issues that that many of the religions religions care about things like social justice, environmental justice, racial justice, mm-hmm. um, LGBTB rights, things like that. Um, I think I think that is a much more honest and a much more productive political approach today. Um, rather than just kind of saying, you know, or just keep those things at home. And when you come into the religious sphere, as if we can put those things aside. Yeah, I mean, we have plenty of political leaders who certainly don't do that. And I, I, I don't think it makes sense to ask people in our political square to leave their personal beliefs at home. That doesn't make any sense. But um you brought up William Connolly. I have to ask, is this the same guy who wrote the uh, uh, book about capitalism and Christianity? Yeah. Okay. And capitalism, capitalism and Christianity, American style. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. See. That See, means there's that's... gravy on top. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I recognize that we're, we're going to approach our, our time uh, somewhat soon, but I, I would be remiss, at least for me, I, Zach may have his own it's a whole series of wrap-up questions, but I, I have one question that occurs to me. You know, working in a, a politics-adjacent field uh, in the last, oh, let's say, just over a year, I've gotten a lot of questions about, you know, whether there is hope um, at the end of this um, challenging tunnel. Many of us see this to be a challenging tunnel that we are deep, buried deep within right now. Uh, politically and and with all of the attendant um, spheres that are touched by that political reality. Um, and so my, my answer is usually that it depends on what kind of hope they're talking about and in what area. And so I, I'm conscious that there's nuance to that question, but that's kind of the question I want to put to you is, is there hope? Uh, how is there hope for we as people of faith, uh, maybe in the Protestant traditions in particular, to sort of reclaim this? Do you, do you think there is real hope and possibility in that? Is there hope for us as a, as a body politic, sort of writ large, that we might recapture this better attunement with uh, our ecology? Or, or are we heading down a path that is irretrievable? <laughs> Yeah, it's such a great question. It's such an important question. Um, I think if we look at the odds, the odds are definitely not in our favor, right? Um, and I think that that is why what's leading a lot of scientists um, into despair. I just read um, a great book um, by Donna Haraway, a feminist biologist, um, called "Staying with the Trouble." And this is the question that sh- that she arrives at too: What do we do when, in the face of the kind of odds that we that we are up against in terms of loss of biodiversity, climate change, um, this, these things that seem inevitable? How do we gather the courage? 
the strength, the motivation to keep going. Mm-hmm. Right. That's and probably I, a more productive question, really. <laughs> yeah. And so and for her, um, she she's skeptical of the language of hope because um, because it's um, usually when we talk about hope, it means that there is a certain outcome. Right. And it usually implies a sense of either um, an omnipotent God who has everything worked out and um, and will will pull us back from the brink of whatever kind of hell we create um, or a omnipotent um, human ability for techno creation. Right. Mm-hmm. Who will pull us back from the brink of whatever kind of hell we create. Surely science will save us. Yes. Yeah. I'm, and I'm and following Elon to Mars thing. personally. Elon has yeah. a lot of plans. Yeah. About a lot of planets. But anyway. <laughs> but I think um, I think for me, this is one of the really powerful things about Lutheran theology. Um, and it's something that I realized um, it's something that we share with with other faith traditions as well. I was at an inner interfaith um, discussion on Earth Day last um, this last Earth Day. Um, with a Buddhist, um, a uh, myself, and um, and a is- Islamic scholar, and the funny thing was, somebody I think it was oh, and a, a Jewish scholar as well. And the Jewish scholar first shared this story about how somebody in their tradition, they have this kind of this tale that somebody in their tradition um, said, you know, if the end of the world came tomorrow, I would plant a tree. Right. And um, and then somebody in the Islamic um, tradition said, hey, we kind of have something like that, too. We it's you know, this um, you know, we don't know how um, accurate it is, but we have this important person who has said, um, yeah, if the end of the world came tomorrow, I would plant a tree. And I've heard this about Luther as well. Mm-hmm. I've never mm-hmm. seen it written, but it's just like one of these stories we tell. So I, if somebody I heard it about Peter Severson. Find it. <laughs> What was that? I've heard it about Peter Severson, you know, he said that. And so, so I don't, I don't know if we can accurately attribute it to Luther, but I think it does, it does capture something of his spirit that um, if the end of the world comes tomorrow, nevertheless, nonetheless, I will plant a tree. Um, And so to me, that's, there's a sense of um, resistance in that. Like if, if in the face, if the odds are right and we have no chance of making it to year 2100, nonetheless, I will plant a tree. Um, and I think that that's kind of an ultimate statement of faith, of faith in God and in faith in God's, um, love for creation. Um, and, um, and also of, um, a really powerful form of resistance, Peter, if there's not hope in death, is there hope at all, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, that's that's the ultimate hope, perhaps. I don't know. As, you know, Zach, as a, as a pessimist, perhaps, perhaps mm-hmm. that's the hope that keeps so, you going. That's all I got, know? man. All I got. <laughs> You'll, you'll sleep when you're dead and, and hope as well. I, I think, I think that's powerful though, Tara. I, I, in a way I hear that, that last injunction as sort of a call to like, to, to live in hope, even if that's a word that some find troublesome or not, not helpful. I, that's sort of a framework that I, I think I live with personally is in, and it's, 
something that sustains me is, you know, living in hope, even when, you know, all seems quite hopeless. And that's what I have. That's what I've told people about uh, our, our political landscape. And it doesn't mean that it's going to get better or it, what it means for sure is that it's not going to get better just passively um, for one. But it also means that, you know, I, we don't know if it's going to get better or if, if that's going to happen. Um, but we we live with an orientation towards, um, you know, living in in the fullness of what God has called us to be and sort of taking taking the next faithful step forward with every step we take and every move we make god will be watching us <laughs> wait i'll be missing you god yeah. will be missing I think, us oh, sorry god will miss you because god yes. will have abandoned us and no Zach, just like biggie is... abandoned is that okay maybe the metaphors got crossed there <laughs> you're really you're really getting a strained metaor <laughs> Uh, Zach, do you have any uh, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I questions? think that's great. I think that's great. We got to lots of fun places. I mean, I guess if I do have a final thought, no, I don't. I don't have final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what we can leave our our fearless listeners with is mm-hmm. a reminder that Professor Tara Rowe of the University of North Texas, the, the jazz green. capital, our heartland. Is the author of Toward a Better Worldliness, Ecology, Economy, and the Protestant Tradition, uh, out from Fortress Press, uh, April of this very year. Uh, I assume people can find it wherever fine books are sold. Hey, Peter, Peter, let me tell you something right now. If you go to Amazon.com, it's Uh on sale. Perfect. 60% off. Oh. Hardcover $28.92 right now on Amazon. Wow. That is is a deal. Are we going to get the the royalties going to get back to you from that, Tara? If we if we buy it on on a deep discount? Oh, um, I, I I honestly have no idea, but <laughs> that's certainly not the point. So well, even if you're not, I would say go do it. Here we go. I, here I am, just reorienting to the material. <laughs> but anyway, yes, available available online or wherever these these fine books are sold. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Tara. I really, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, you guys. Thanks for um, thanks for pursuing these really great, important conversations. It is our pleasure, as always. Uh, our dear listeners know that they can expect another one of these uh, great needed conversations in approximately five months from now. (laughs) If we don't go on another hiatus. (laughs) Cool. Are you going to take us out, Zach? Do you have the outro? Yeah, I can outro. It's been a while. I got to remember. We all sing together Pod Bless America, right? Is that how it... (laughs) Pod Bless... That's probably a good enough place to call it. Uh, Thanks.